Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brothers Creed Podcast where we talk about motivation, experiences, and exploring the world around us. We're the Thomas Brothers and I'm Jared. I'm Ethan. And today, actually, we're, we're doing a, a part two to our episode on uh, basically man-made disasters and what lessons can be learned from those disasters. So uh, in, in part one, if you haven't listened to it yet, we talked about uh, a massive gas leak in India. Yep. That the Bhopal disaster in 1984. Yep. This was, this was the episode of the 80s. And then we talked about Chernobyl. <laughs> Yeah, which also happened in 1986, right? Yep. Uh, 80s was a bad, as, as a bad decade. <laughs> it was, I it was, was born in the 80s, so. <laughs> well, technically, I was too. Oh yeah, you're 89, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. So not all bad, I guess. <laughs> yeah, not all bad. So, so there was a lot of things that happened. Um, you know, and we talked about a couple different things. That we talked about responsibility. We talked about um, accountability. We talked about a lot of these companies or these countries has spent so much money, invested so much into something that it's like they they they, they won't let it fail or they won't they won't accept that something didn't go right. Yeah. Um, and so in this uh, continuation of that uh, that episode, we're gonna share a couple more of the stories that we that we thought were really interesting. Yeah. Let's go ahead and jump in. All right. You can't climb the ladder of success with your hands in a pocket. We will not go quietly into the night. They tell me you're a man with true grit. I am the one who knocks. Don't ever tell me what I can't do, ever! That's how winning is done. Okay, so I have a, a really cool story here. And, and this was one that happened... In uh, a little bit further back uh, than the '80s that we talked about last time, this happened in in the in the '60s. Uh, this is this was known as the Van Jont Dam, and this is in Italy. So this dam, uh, it's really it was one of the tallest dams in the world, and actually it's still ta- it's still sta- standing to this day. Uh, it was one of the tallest dams in the world. It was built between 1957 and 1960. So this dam, right from the beginning, had lots of problems. Um, uh, in March of 1959, there was during construction, there was a landslide that occurred that caused a 66-foot wave that killed someone. And this is during the construction of the dam. And so uh, if you think, if just in your mind, if... What, you're, what this dam looks like is it's just these two mountainsides that come and they pinch together pretty tightly. Uh, and uh, this um, dam is just like a little V uh, between these two mountainsides. Uh, and it just goes down and it's super deep. It's like a thousand feet high, the dam is. And so it's very high, very tight. Uh, and it's between these two mountains. And uh, so w- what happened is that guy died, and a year later, well, in 1960, there was a handful of smaller landslides, uh, and instead of, uh, you know, heeding the warning signals that they should have, like, hey, maybe, why are these landslides happening? Uh, the government actually sued journalists over reporting this and saying, hey, maybe this is something we should be concerned about. They sued them for, quote, undermining social order, unquote. Uh, and so stop talking about it. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Early censorship, you know? Uh, and so then in 1960s, 
uh, also the 1960s, another landslide occurred, and this was this time it was of three million cubic feet. Uh, so if you think about like, like a cubic foot, just you know, if you took a cube that's a foot on each side and you put a f- dirt in there, three thirty million of those. It's kind of hard to to, to conceptualize, but uh, that uh, amount fell into the lake, uh, and so they're like, "Whoa!" Well, they stopped filling the lake at that time, uh, which it was six hundred and twenty feet deep, uh, and they kind of they lowered it to about one hundred and sixty feet deep, or, or they lowered it by. Um, 160 feet at that time. They were like, okay, let's let's figure out what's going on. Uh, and so a few years later, uh, the in 1963, there was continual movement, continual, uh, you know, tremors and shaking and all this kind of stuff. And uh, they detected in September of 1963 that the entire mountainside that was right near the the dam. Uh, had slid 22 centimeters. Uh, and then about 10 days later, that turned into three feet. Uh, and so what was happening is at that time, it was in the summer of 1963, there were super heavy rains. Lots of rain was coming down, record high levels. In fact, the the um, the, the lake was at 814 feet high, only 50 feet uh, from the top of the dam. Uh, and that was uh, in the summer of '63. Now, a little bit later, kind of in the fall, like I said, like I mentioned, in October 9th, uh, the water was only 82 feet below the crest of the dam, so it was super high. And now, relieve some of that pressure. Let some of that water go. Yeah. Now, now, now let me explain. Uh, so the 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 big slide happened on October 9th, 1963. So let me explain some other stuff first, though. They had, so that because of all these landslides and stuff that had happened previously, they're like, well, we need to do an investigation and figure out what, um, you know, what is possible here and how we can uh, mitigate the chances of a tidal wave from a landslide. So they built like a, I think it was like a one to 200 size model uh, or, or 200 to one size model. Uh, and it was almost like a, you know, they so they would build the model, and then they would uh, practice dropping stuff into this thing. And, I mean, basically, it was like a stream that they had built with this, something damming up the stream. And then they would take a tractor, and they would pull in a bunch of dirt and see what, how much dirt, at what angle, how, much, how high the splash was, and how high all this stuff. So they did all these tests and all these tests. And they're like, okay, well, we don't think that this, the... the um, the water will splash any higher than a hundred feet. That was what they they thought, and they said, "Well, you know, it's it's that's that was the conclusion of this report, all these tests." So keep that in mind. Only they thought it would only splash up a hundred feet. So, in the context of this, uh, in 1968 October, it's 80. The water level is 82 feet below, and it's like, well, the worst case scenario, it's going to be a hundred foot wave over the top of the dam. So well, it'll be. 20 feet over the top of the dam because yeah, it's oh, yeah, 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 80 yeah. feet yeah, yeah, exactly. from the top. So the, a little bit of water, a little bit of water, you know. And so uh, th- they had kind of been warning people a little bit, but they're just like, hey, you know, um, yeah, there might be a little bit of water splashing over the dam tonight, so, you know, just you know, be careful or whatever. And, and nobody really paid attention because uh, they kind of really downplayed it, I guess. And 
In fact, they were <laughs> there was they were told the linemen, the electrical linemen, like sleep with both eyes open tonight. <laughs> so they told them, and so maybe some people were warned, some people knew, but uh, I think that some people, definitely most people, didn't know. And so there's a, a city right below the dam uh, in the valley uh, that is named Longarone, uh, and. On that night, um, at about 10 o'clock, uh, some of the engineers see some rocks start to fall, some trees, and they're like, oh, this thing's going to slide in. Let's go check it out. So they go out on the dam, and then <laughs> this giant half of the mountain comes off and lands into the reservoir. And uh, 9,200 million cubic feet of rock, earth, forest, all this stuff from the southern flank of Montauk, which is the mountain, into the lake at 68 miles per hour. Within 45 seconds, all that rock had settled onto the bottom and 4,100 million cubic feet of water was displaced in about 25 seconds. About about 20,000 acre feet of water went over the dam so this thing was obviously a massive splash. Eight, the, the splash went up 820 feet into the air. Well, damn. <laughs> yeah. And then a, <laughs> Sorry, I had a, to. a wave, <laughs> yeah, a wave of 330 feet went over the dam of water. <laughs> so that was a little more than they were expecting. Uh, a mistake has been made. Yes, absolutely. So those engineers on the on the dam, I'm sure they got absolutely wiped out. Uh, and so, what's interesting though is that the shockwave. So all that air, all that uh, land sliding down, created a huge shockwave. Uh, it says one thing is I was reading. It said it had estimated that the shockwave resulting from the displacement of air was even double the intensity generated by the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Thus, half of the victims killed who were found outdoors were dismembered and pulverized, uh, and nothing of them was found. So the air displacement was like two nuclear bombs going off. Just like, boom. And I think I heard that in the the city, uh, some of the ways that people described it, they said that it, it sounded like a, like a clap of like a giant clap of thunder and then after that the most terrible sound you can imagine they said it was like someone like rolling up a like a mechanic's garage door but like a billion times worse that was the way that was the way they described uh and they did they said that was their quote Uh, it sounded like a like they said a billion times worse uh, than a garage door opening. So I was like, imagine all that debris going, and just, you know, uh, so pretty wild, you know. Um, the wave dis- absolutely destroyed the town uh, the in the valley below, killing 2,000 people uh, basically instantly. Um, the uh, the thing is, it was when the, when the wave hit, uh, there was a city that was upstream, that was back uh, upstream, and then, so th- or a giant wave was going to almost wipe out that city too. But luckily there was like kind of like a little s- part of the mountain came out a little bit to almost shield it, that city a little bit. So it didn't take a the direct blow. 
Uh, and then obviously there was a wave that went down uh, over the dam. Uh, so the dam didn't break. Uh, the dam stayed intact. The water just went over, over the dam. Uh, and uh, and that's where the town that was below got totally wiped out. And there's like, it's not like, oh, just it got smashed. No, it's just it turned from a city into a mud field. There's nothing. Like there's no looking for survivors I mean, there was a bunch of soldiers that came in the next day and they were just digging with their hands because it was just a mud field. Uh, you know, everything was absolutely buried. And uh, it, since it was at night, people were sleeping, you know. They were uh, not aware of what was going on. And uh, it, so it destroyed the villages of uh, Longaron, uh, Pirago, and Rivalta in Villanova. Uh, of an estimated... 1,328 people in Longanora who were at risk at the time of the flood wave, 1,269 fatalities occurred, resulting in a fatality rate of 94%. So 94% of of the town died. Absolutely wiped out. Uh, Mm. And the dam was basically largely undamaged. So uh, the reason for why this happened is the mountain started absorbing a lot of this water. All this rainwater was being absorbed. Also, they kept going up and down with the damn uh, water, water levels. levels. <laughs> damn water levels, man. They just kept going all over the place with them. And uh, that also caused it. So uh, there's a piece here that I, I wanted to read. It says, the canyon was steep-sided. The river had undercut its banks, and the limestone and claystone rocks that made up the walls of the canyon were interbedded. And with a slippery clay uh, liaise and Dodger Jurassic period horizons and Cretaceous period Malm horizons, all of which were inclined towards the axis of the canyon. So you know, you have this layer of clay in between these layers of, of sediment, and they're all inclined towards the layer of the canyon, so easy rock slide. Now, some people say, well, this rock slide was going to have it anyway. It didn't. The dam didn't do anything. The dam w- didn't cause it. It was gonna happen anyway. But you know, some people are claiming. Some scientists have claimed. Well, it was because the the mountain was so saturated, and because of all this stuff, uh, it couldn't handle the pressure of all that water, and so uh, that's why it happened. And also because of all that rain. Uh, as the local, which was a newspaper, explained, uh, following disaster, the Italian government insisted that the landslide was an unforeseeable act of God. Uh, the disaster became highly politicized uh, with the opposition in the Italian's, Italy's par- parliament calling out the government's negligence uh, while the ruling party tried to rewrite history of the events uh, leading to the disaster. So, I mean, within a few days of the disaster, there were people from the opposite political party out there saying, oh, this is so terrible. Can you believe that the government would do this? You know, that party is so awful. Immediately politicized, just like Chernobyl. Yeah. You know, just like... You know, the other one I shared kind of, that was more corporate politics. But uh, an interesting thing here is uh, the, in, in 2008, however, the UNESCO publicly called the incident a classic example of the consequences of failure of engineers and geologists to understand the nature of the problems uh, that they were trying to deal with. So, like I said earlier, I think the lessons learned here is just because something is expensive, just because something costs a lot of money to put into place, uh, doesn't mean you should ignore warning signs. Doesn't mean you should 
ignore, uh, you know, don't be afraid to pull the plug on something, even if it was expensive, if it's, you know, potentially hazardous to all these people. And uh, also uh, take what your government says with a grain of salt. <laughs> you know, because how or many... What, exam- the, what, the, what the opposing party to the current regime <laughs> says. How many examples do we have of the government, uh, you know, not necessarily telling us the truth? I mean, yeah. The, right now, uh, just today, in fact, I was listening to uh, you know, they're, they're asking a lot of questions. They're like, well, you know, maybe this COVID did release from this Wuhan lab. And lots of people have been saying that from the beginning, you know, but, uh, purposefully potentially. Yeah. Well, th- apparently there was two guys, two techs in that lab that went to the hospital in November of 2019 with flu like symptoms. Uh, th- they never knew exactly what they had. And then, Oh, so from someone who ate a bat and, uh, Fauci's emails got released. Uh, someone did a Freedom of Information Act on those emails, and so those got released. And so, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, he it, there's some kind of some evidence or some indication that he ha- had been told that it, it would, looked manufactured." And so, very interesting. Uh, wear unfolding. a mask. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Wear two masks. You don't have to wear any mask. Social distance. Yeah, d- but three feet. No, six feet. Yeah. <laughs> now he, wear three masks. He said in that he said get one it, vaccine, get it twice, get it three times. Oh, now you need it every year. He said in his emails, he said vaccines. He said the, the masks won't do anything. Uh, he said the the bioconditions too small for your mask. He's like it's well. There's been a lot of people that say the mask was just it was just uh, for more social unrest to make people feel better. And there's been many politicians that have come out and said that. Well, yeah. Um, well, uh, probably on the right, though. I, I would be shocked to see if a, a politician on the left came out and said that the masks were just theater. Yeah. But anyway, interesting uh, in, in the context of, you know, past disasters and then, you know, looking at what the government's telling you and then kind of trying to understand that. Even now, like, we're a little bit past, you know, the, the, the heat of COVID. We're looking back, we're saying, okay, well, was that true or was this true? And then some of it's unraveling a little bit. Yeah. Hey, guys, just wanted to take a quick break and say thank you for listening today and invite you to support us on Patreon. As a loyalist supporter, you get access to two additional episodes per month, which are not released publicly. You can find the link to our Patreon page in the episode description. Let's get back to the show. So the next one that I have is uh, goes along more along the lines of the, that corporate nature as well. So uh, this one was actually made into a movie recently within the past couple of years with Mark Wahlberg. Marky Mark. So this one is the incident that happened on the uh, oil mining rig of uh, deep called Deepwater Horizon. So um, this is while uh, while drilling deep exp- a deep very deep exploratory well in the Gulf of Mexico on April twentieth. 2010, so 2010, uh, the rig known as Deepwater Horizon exploded. Uh, 11 of the 126 member uh, crew members died. 17 of those were treated for injuries. And on April 22nd, two days later, um, it began to uh, spill this oil. So basically what it was, you'd think if in, in the Gulf of Mexico, you have these big uh, oil mining facilities that are out there. And um, 
they had been digging some wells and uh, it was kind of like it started off exploratory, but then they they had hit some uh, some oil and um, they started to uh, pump this oil. Well, the there's a couple different companies here, but the company that was running the oil rig itself, Deepwater Horizon, was just kind of a contractor company. And then um, the facility was owned by somebody else, but then it was contracted by BP, was the kind of the the the, the end contractor for or the the end um, uh, recipient of this oil. So uh, basically. There's a ton of information to go into it, but they got to the point to where they wanted to cap this well. They wanted to, it was a, a very productive well, and they didn't want to uh, tap it right now, but they said, okay, well, we're going to cap it, and then we'll come back and, and we'll we'll take the oil out later. Well, they their capping strategy was extremely faulty and it was not really proven they had done it with a couple other rigs before and had issues basically what they did is they injected this concrete into the hole that they had drilled and then they used nitrogen to um they pumped nitrogen into it and it was like a uh, almost like a, a um like a fast set type thing. It, it, it helped to set the concrete extremely fast. Well, they did that, but there was so much pressure from the oil coming up that it was a mixture of they didn't use enough concrete or they this, this fast set nitrogen injection um, uh, procedure was not very efficient. And so uh, there was several of the engineers that were saying, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. And then BP sent out some some head honchos, some bigwig guys, and they came out and they, they poked around and they tapped some gauges and they, you know, ran a test and they said, oh, looks good to me. Looks good to us. Oh, sealed up, you know. And um, so... Uh, let's see. It says over the course of 87 days, the rig's damaged wellhead spewed between 134 million and 260 million gallons of oil uh, into the Gulf. So that's a lot of oil. So what happened? So, 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 so basically, what happened was this: this the, the concrete failed, or something. The concrete failed, and they they had these different. Um, they had a different shutoff. Basically, it was this. So the concrete failed, and the pressure behind the concrete almost like just popped it off, popped the concrete out like a the cork on a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this oil came spewing out like a geyser. And um, they had another failsafe in that they could activate this. Um, basically, it was like a. Uh, the 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 pipes that are underneath that are controlling the flow, they could activate these. Uh, basically, they're like guillotines that come down and they they slice the pipe in half to stop the flow and just immediately stop the flow. Like they're like these check valves, and they tried to do that, but there was so much pressure 
in the pipe that had built up or in the, the well that had built up that those failed too. It wasn't the pipes bent so the guillotine wouldn't close properly or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I can't remember exactly how, how it was. But basically, it started spewing this oil. And it spewed this oil out um, over the course of 87 days. And they just, they literally could not stop it. Like, they couldn't do anything to stop it. I mean, it's not like you just hold your hand over it or, or I mean, they tried they tried uh, shooting more concrete into it. And then there's this other strategy of, like, you use this, this mud-type substance that you inject into it. But that didn't work either because the pressure was too high. Um, and so, obviously, if you're you're losing million hundreds of millions of gallons of crude oil into the ocean i mean that's that's an issue like a massive issue yeah so some of the issues that came from it um says for 5 years after the disaster there was an estimated that over 800,000 birds 65,000 sea turtles 12% of the area's brown pelican population and four times as many dolphins that were previously historic uh, that that the previous historic rates had died. So 800,000 birds died, 65,000 sea turtles died, uh 12,000 or 12% of the entire population of of pelicans in the area died. Um, and then four times more dolphins that usually die in a year died. Uh, because and also it destroyed the tourism ministry for Louisiana. Oh, for sure. Texas. And it was interesting, too, because it said area. a reported 10% of the oil from the Deepwater Horizon spill sank to the seafloor. Yeah. And just completely demolished any of the... Uh, the sea life on the sea floor as yeah. well. And so it just killed everything at the top Coral and reasons, killed so. everything at the bottom. Um, and it's going to continue to, to affect that from, um, for years to come. So it was interesting because on, um, so in early July, the cap was removed several days. It was removed for several days, uh, so that they could, put basically a more permanent seal can be installed on this well. Um, and they, they finally were able to cap the well. Um, it says, though the leak had slowed, that pressure had kind of slowed a little bit so that they could um, that they could cap the well. It was estimated by a government-commissioned panel of scientists that four, four million... 900,000 barrels of oil had already leaked into the Gulf. So almost 5 million barrels of oil had leaked into the Gulf. And only 800,000 barrels had been captured. So Wow. What do you mean captured? Like in the cleanup? No, captured as in like the... Uh, as in drilled. As, as in, in like they had, they had taken it out. And it's interesting because they're saying... You know, if they would have potentially, I don't know, maybe if there was some way they could have like harnessed the flow of this. It would have been like a money payday. Geyser, potentially. Yeah. I mean, there was 5 million barrels that came shooting out of this thing, and they were only able to collect 800,000 barrels out of it. Hmm. Um, so that one was... Uh, so how'd uh, they end up clogging it, stopping it in the end? So basically, they because the... Um, 
the 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 leak had slowed down so much that they were able to um they were able to do one of these strategies where they actually pumped this pressurized mud into it and they packed it in there and then they were able to cap it with um uh, some sort of concrete cap or something like that that uh, is more effective than that nitrogen seal concrete thing that they had previously so wow yeah really interesting um and just the effects that it had on I mean, yeah, there was there was a couple of people that died themselves, and people got seriously injured on the the rig itself, which the rig actually ended up sinking because it like it ended up like exploding. Yeah. Um. And uh, the whole rig sank into the ocean. Really. Yeah. Yeah. And so it in this must have been a floating rig then. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So I just Crazy. thought that was yeah an interesting one. Yeah, that one's nuts, man. <laughs> you know, the corporate guys come in. It looks looks pretty good here. Yeah. Just I'm going to get on my helicopter and I'm going to fly off now. Yeah, pull the trigger on this. We're going to leave. Yeah. Wow. So, um, another one. Yeah. Well, the, I have a small have one, though. Okay. Uh, this was a, this is the most referred to as the London Pea Soup Fog in the 1950s. Yeah. So, from the time of the Battle of Waterloo, London has always experienced fog, like lots of fog. Um, with increased use of coal, uh, and the situation got even worse. Uh, it was fog or fog or smog. Well, the, or maybe fog, both. But but like okay, but the the smog as well. I guess you could call it. Uh, and the cold, damp day in December 1952, when the city was enveloped in a thick blanket of yellow green vicious fog. So it was not just it's basically pollutants. Uh, when the city was um. It made worse by the fumes from the household coal fires, uh, lorries. I'm not sure what a lorry is. Buses, coal-fired factories, and pollution coming from uh, uh, other other areas. Uh, the basically the greasy particle-laden fog killed 12,000 people in four days uh, through bronchial complications and another 8,000 within a few weeks. It has been estimated that more than 100,000 people suffered from lung problems, including pneumonia and bronchitis. So when I read this, it reminded me, I lived in uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, they have terrible, what they call them inversions. And it's when, like, a lot of times what happens is uh, in the winter time, uh, you get this, in the valley, it just gets so pollute like, all the cars and all the pollution just sits in the valley. And uh, above that, the I think the air is like, uh, it's like warmer or something like that. And, and so it, it can't escape. It just and traps it all just traps of all the pollution in there. And in the wintertime, sometimes it can get pretty bad. I mean, especially if there's like, well, even in the summer times, if there's fires and stuff, all that smoke just settles in the valley and the wind doesn't blow it out very easily. And so that can be, some people just leave Salt Lake area during the winter because it's too bad on their allergies. Like old people and stuff, they just can't handle it. And uh, man, when those are the, those Calif- even the, the the fires in California uh, will come over. When I was living in Boise, I mean, they came over and they were choking us out. Sometimes it was just like so bad with some of the uh, 
smoke that would settle in and then you just be like you couldn't already even see 50 yards outside and and on some occasions so it's crazy well, yeah i mean it's crazy that it had that much much effect on the people that that lived there too i mean there was thousands of people that that died from complications to breathing problems and i think probably a result of that is what year was that do you know what year that was that was in 1952 so i mean maybe it's potentially that uh medicine wasn't as good then you know maybe they didn't have the type of filtration that they do now well, I, think re- or I think it probably has more to do with regulations you know yeah and, and the like regulation on cars regulation on factories regulation on people aren't burning coal in their homes because it's mostly yeah. electric now also yeah. that w- that in extreme population density I think as well plays into effect there also one thing that I've heard people a lot of say a lot of conservative people say that I Especially with this, you know, this gas shortage on the East Coast recently, it, they'll be like, "Oh, did you hear that? You know, in uh, Texas or where, wherever it was, or no, this was in maybe it was in the Texas thing, the ice, the ice storm in Texas. Like, oh, yeah. the ice storm. Uh, they're they're using diesel generators to, uh, you know, charge their buses that are that are on electric power. Uh, this is so funny and, and like almost like a knock to electric power. But I, I'm kind of like, well. If you think about it, those buses are running all the time. So to cut down on, if the city can cut down on that pollution, like pollution can, can be a big deal. I don't know how big deal it is in Texas, but in like Salt Lake City, pollution's a big deal. And because it doesn't go anywhere. And so it may, on a regular operating basis, you know, those electric buses are going to run properly. That's like saying, oh, you had to run your generator to keep your refrigerator? You're an idiot. Your refrigerator running? Oh, you're an idiot. It's like, well, you know, on a normal basis, I would expect my refrigerator to be used regular electricity. So yeah. I thought that was kind of a, a dumb, off-the-cuff remark that some of uh, my conservative um, uh, friends and stuff, I think it's just not very thought out, you know, uh, when people would say that. But anyway. Yeah. So, so here's another one that's kind of interesting, um, and it's more recent. So, it's 2013. You remember when um, all of like the the water issues started happening in Flint, Michigan? Oh yeah. So, in 2013, um, officials in Michigan decided to switch the source of Flint's drinking water to the Flint River, river rather than uh, Detroit city water. So, basically, they said everybody in Flint, Michigan, was getting their water from Detroit city water and they decided to switch that um, and basically get the drinking water for Flint out of the Flint River. Um, So this move was intended to be a temporary fix while they waited for um, the local water authority system to do some inspections and fixes and different things that they needed to do. Um, and then eventually uh, switch to uh, provide water from Lake Huron, um, which is a, a better quality water, I guess. So uh, residents of Flint uh, raised concerns about the new water source almost immediately, and a boil order went into effect just a few months after the water uh, this, they switched this water source, and it tested positive, positive for uh coliform bacteria which is typically indicated the that pathogens are present in the water so there was all these different types of bacteria and pathogens that were in the water uh, that was coming out of 
the Flint River. And, you know, these these people were like, whoa, 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 you know, don't, don't, like, this water is terrible. And then it took a couple months for the government to come out and say, oh, yeah, well, there's now there's a boil order, right? You have to boil all of your water before you drink it. Can yeah. you imagine having to boil all the water before you drink it? That would be terrible. Yeah. And then, and also, to add insult to injury, most of this area was a... Very low income area. Oh yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, basically, there was they they went through all these different types of things and all these different solutions or whatever, but they didn't change it back the water source. And then they the 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 government started just they would have truckfuls and truckfuls and truckfuls bottled water bottled water, and people would just they would pull up their car and they'd load their car up with as much bottled water as they could, and then they'd drive off. Um, so. Uh, getting into a little bit of the specifics, it says, though officials in the city insisted the water was safe, after a few months, uh, doctors from the Hurley Medical Institute found that high levels of lead, so they found high levels levels of lead in the blood of children in Flint. And uh, they did a comparative blood test of these these children um, who they had they had drawn their blood before this switch. And they did a comparative test of their blood after, and the percentage of children with high lead levels in their blood had doubled. Um, so after how, after the water, how did they not catch that when they did the bacterial tests? The lead was high. So so basically, what it says, um, it says researchers of Virginia Tech found that the water from the Flint River likely corroded the lead pipes which experts believe poisoned the residents for 18 months. So there must have been something in the water in the Flint River that negatively reacted with the lead pipes that the original water source was not doing. And so when they made that switch to Lake, or I mean to the to the Flint River, that water being just different corroded like almost immediately those lead pipes and that is what led, led, pun intended, to um, all of these <laughs> issues. So um, it says the contaminated you water. Can't boil that, you can't boil that out. Yeah, you can't boil lead out. So the contaminated water has also been blamed for an increase in several types of pneumonia and uh, Legionnaire's disease. Um, thanks to the... Um, I guess it says low levels, low levels of chlorine and and uh, increased lead. Um, so I think I've heard that once you get lead in your body, it will never go out of your body. Yeah, like that's why they encourage you. Well, in some cases, that you they say don't eat the fish in this certain lake, or no, that's mercury. Or that's mercury. Right, it's the mercury. Never mind. That's why people ask you, did you eat paint chips as a kid? Yeah, that's <laughs> lead. Yeah. Like, no, why? Tommy boy. No, yeah. why? Did you live under power lines as a kid? <laughs> no. Why does everybody keep asking me that? <laughs> so it says, according to PBS in 2018, uh, while the official record says that 90 people were made sick and 12 people were killed, the investigation showed that as many as, many as 119 people had died that year from pneumonia caused as a result of the bacteria in the water. Um, in addition, 
a study found that fetal deaths ro- death rates rose and fertility rates dropped following the water source switch. Um, today, the water has been reported to be at acceptable levels of water quality, but many have expressed doubt over its safety. Well, yeah, when the government's uh, like... Yeah, they told you it was safe, and then it wasn't, and then they told you it was fine, and, and then, then it, it wasn't, wasn't, and then they said, oh, you should probably boil it, and then you boiled it, and they said, uh, here, take all this bottled water, don't drink the water, yeah. and then they come out you know, how, a couple months later and say, oh, you know what, it's probably fine. And then someone... And then someone it's like the government just waits until someone's face is melting off, and they're like, "Oh well, maybe we should check out the water." Yeah. Oh yeah, people's faces are melting off. You know, you probably shouldn't drink this. I remember seeing when all this was going on. I remember seeing this um, uh, this thing. It was like city council or something like that. A city council meeting where a guy brought a jar of uh, water that he got from the. There were certain neighborhoods that were worse than others, I guess. But he bought, brought a jar of water that he got from his kitchen sink, from the just from tap water, and he brought it in as like a mason jar, and he held it up, and he said, "This is what, I uh, this is what you're saying is safe to drink." And he opened it up, and he took it. He he was like, "Any of you?" He said, "Would you drink this water?" He said, "I dare you to drink this water," and he actually took a sip of it, and he was like, "I dare you to drink this water," and all of the city council members were like, "Uh, you know." No 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 no, 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 no. You know, he's like, come to my house and turn on the, t- you know, come to the house of anyone in my neighborhood, turn on the tap, and this is what you're going to get. And, and you tell me this is safe to drink? This is safe for my kids to, to make my kids bottles out of? This is safe to, you know, yeah. well, whatever else? Well, you think about what I, what I heard about that is that the, 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 the water is like a public utility, and because it's such an impoverished area, they don't have the funds to maintain a proper uh, operation, basically. Yeah. Well, it's and like, so oh, it's it was, control. It's it's maintained by tax taxpayer dollars. Well, yeah, and the well, taxpayer if you don't have taxpayer dollars, are basically then nil to none. So, I mean, you've got this totally mismanaged thing, and they're and they're basically just drinking right out of the river, and they're like, well, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, now thousands of miles of pipes are are messed up. Well, we don't have billions of dollars, and I think that the the government did give them a bunch of money, but. You know, they, they still yeah. can't. I just move out of Flint, Michigan, dude. Well, but if you didn't have any money, then how are you going to move? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think it's 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 a lose-lose in certain situations where, you know, sometimes people are taken advantage of. And, you know, it's it's sad to see that. And if anything, it just makes me even more grateful for what I have, yeah. right? It makes me more grateful for being able to, to take a glass from the cupboard and just push it to the sink and get some ice and get some water and not think about it one bit. Yeah. I think that, you know, it, it just goes, it's just another example of you need to have your own head on a, you need to have your head on a swivel and be thinking about uh, what's good for you. Be, is this water taste is weird. I don't know why it's tasting like this. Maybe I should look into this. Maybe I should have it tested personally. Uh, you know, take, Take matters into your own hands. Don't be don't be beholden to other people's things. And you know, if if you had if someone at the beginning of this thing had said, "Hmm, this water is weird," or this, I, I, I'm, they're saying boil this water, and maybe I should get this tested my on my own to see if this is accurate. But I guess these people were poor, man. They don't have the yeah. beans to do that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, there's this Netflix show that talks about like uh, food conspiracies and and. Um, you know, basically the ins and outs of like different food industries and how it's so 
bureaucratic and and it's all about the money politics, and it's yeah. all about politi- politics and everything. One of the things that one of the episodes I dove into um, uh, bottled water, and the, there was this one guy. He uh, he took I think it was like I don't I don't want to defamate any uh, uh, specific bottle company. Dasani. Uh, <laughs> you talking about Dasani? It was Dasani, and one they of the things like they have like salt in there and well, like so one, stuff that makes you thirsty. Well, yeah, but one of the things that he took Dasani and he um, he took it. He basically. Uh, he has he had a pool in his backyard, and every now and then at the local pool shop, you can you know dip your pool water and put it in a container, take it to the to the pool shop, and they'll test your water for you. They have like this you know thing where they put it in, and it'll it'll print it'll do a printout of your pool quality water. Yeah. So he took Dasani, and he went and put Dasani in there straight out of the bottle. Straight out of the bottle. And he took it to the pool uh, place, and they ran a test on it. And the lady was like, "Whoa, your numbers are way off!" And she's like, "What? What the heck is going on here?" And he was like, "What is that bad?" And she was like, "Yeah, this is not good." She said, "Do not get in that pool." Oh my! And gosh. he was like, "He was like, what do you mean?" And she was like, "This is not safe. Like, this is your your this levels are here, this levels are there. You, you know, and and, and uh, you know, unsafe levels of chlorine and all this other kind of stuff." And and the guy was like, oh, so I shouldn't drink it. And she was like, no, don't drink that water. He was like, she was like, you should probably drain your pool. And, <laughs> and uh, don't even touch it to your skin. And he's like, oh, I bought this at Wal- I bought this at Walmart two hours ago. Yeah, and so it's just you know I don't know. And and maybe maybe the lady didn't know how to read the machine properly, or maybe she what she just didn't see what she was expecting to see with the water or whatever. But it's just. You never know. I, I, I like what you said about how you kind of need to be. I mean, you are the steward of your own life and and uh, of your kids' lives, and you know you have to do what you can do. And you said, you know, well, I would have moved out of Flint. You know what? And you you do what you can. And if it means sacrificing a lot just to get out, then maybe that's what it takes. Uh, yeah, for for the safety of your family. Yeah. I think it's important that we take inventory of all the things that are around us. Sometimes even the things we're taking for granted, you know, like, is this something that, am I doing this the best way? Is this, is this a proven thing? Uh, is this safe? Uh, reevaluating those things. Like we've, we talked about a lot of stuff like this tactical home, tactical readiness. We've talked about emergency preparedness. We've talked about so many different things, uh, not as well as like obviously attributes, like being self-aware. We've talked about that, but, reflecting on saying, okay, well, what is this? Is this water safe? Is is the way that I'm doing this safe? Is the way that I'm locking up my house safe? Is this company treating me right? Is Enron telling me to put put all my money into Enron stocks safe and my job into Enron? You know, like stuff happens, man. Yeah. And how, uh, how do you how do you see the signs? Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think a lot of the these different things that we've talked about from um from the 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 dam in in Italy to Chernobyl, right? Y- there's there's fail safes that are in place, and a lot of times those fail safes, if they're not practiced, yeah, then then you don't know if they're going to work. Then in the time of an emergency is not when you need to, you know, in the time of a of a house fire is not when you need to break out your second story fire ladder for the first time and say, well, I hope this works. Yeah, exactly. you know, or. Whatever it may be, I hope or, my kids know how to use that fire ladder I put under their bed that they've never yeah. even taken out before. Or the, you know, the the oh, I have flashlights in the closet. 
Yeah, well, then when the power goes out four years from now and I go, oh, there's flashlights in the closet. And then I go in the closet and the batteries are dead. Exactly. It's like, what what good is that fail safe if it's not maintained or checked or, you know, yep. whatever else? So or if you take a four piece of a four foot piece of the pipe out, uh, like on that uh, on that flame retardant on the top of that tower uh, on that uh, one I shared last episode, you just take it as, a, oh, we'll replace this later. Or yeah. you take the batteries out of your flashlights. Oh, I'll we'll replace this. You never do. I need to go to the store and buy more batteries. Yeah. yeah. So. so it's it's just being mindful of what's being mindful of your surroundings, be mindful of what's going on and trying to avoid these uh, these potential catastrophes and seeing anticipating some of these things. I think sometimes you you can't. I mean, you can't really exactly anticipate that the side of a whole mountain is going to sink in and, and, you know, do a freaking cannonball into the, <laughs> yeah. into the lake in front of a dam. Just cause a tsunami. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you just got to you got to roll with it and you got to learn from your mistakes. I think that is number one. Yeah. And when the government tells you something, expect the worst. <laughs> yeah. Boiling water. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. Well, well this this, yeah. this has been a great episode. This is kind of a continuation part two to our, uh, our initial uh, man-made disasters and the lessons learned from them. Uh, so follow us on Instagram, uh, on, on all of our platforms, wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it's uh, video on YouTube or audio on a podcast platform, just uh, click the like button, subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, Leave a review if you can. It'd be great. Yeah. Love to hear your your, uh, your, with, if your, like comments, episode, your comments, thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So thanks so much for joining, and uh, let's build that grid together. All right, let's do it. <laughs>